Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at successionstories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. This week, I'm continuing the topic of selling your company, this time from the perspective of a mergers and acquisitions intermediary. Paul Visoki is the president of Stony Hill Advisors, specializing in transactions in the lower middle market. Last year, I teamed up with Paul and the great team at Stony Hill to serve business owners as an M&A advisor. Our first conversation was episode 52, if you want to check it out. As a returning guest, Paul and I had a fantastic conversation about the process of selling and how to avoid common pitfalls. For anyone wondering why you would work with a buy-side or sell-side advisor, Paul shares golden nuggets to think about. By the way, if you haven't yet listened to my conversation with John Warlow in episode 83, tee that one up next. These two episodes go together like peas and carrots, to quote one of my favorite movies, Forrest Gump. Enjoy my conversation about avoiding pitfalls when selling your business with Paul Vesoki. Welcome back to Succession Stories, Paul. I'm excited to talk to you today. You know, we're celebrating our six-month anniversary of working together, which is pretty cool. So the audience might remember that you were on the show last year, roughly six months ago. And I think it's awesome to have you back. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. I am as well. <laughs> In six months, I didn't realize it was that long. I thought it was yeah. uh, more recent. Yeah, we've been working together for six months, so we should probably share with the audience. Some of the folks listening might have heard the episode where I had you on the show, and I was really excited to announce that I had joined up forces with Stony Hill Advisors, which is your firm, to be a partner and working with small business owners in the lower middle market on mergers and acquisitions. You had found me, I guess the story, maybe what's rewind? How did you even find me? How did you reach out? You reached out to me and said, hey, Lori, I think you would be great to join the firm. And I don't know, let's just well, I, I can that. tell the story. <laughs> I was watching one of your podcasts on LinkedIn, you know, then I clicked on and watched the whole video. And what I heard was amazing. And uh, you really get the process of preparing a business for exit. And I reached out to you and said, you know, wouldn't you like to do the rest of the job and help them sell their business too? And you, you hesitated. And I kept staying in touch because I knew you would be perfect for this role because your background is you have the, the experience working in industry in marketing and the personality to really relate to the business owner. So I, I knew you would do a good job. Just took me a long time to get you on board. 
Thank you. And that speaks to your persistence. Well, thank you for sharing that. And also thanks for the, your persistence, because it was a great example of how to overcome objections in a sales process. <laughs> you sure you sure demonstrated that. So why don't we get started? We're going to have a conversation today to help the audience, help listeners understand some of the pitfalls to avoid when selling their company. And I thought the best way to start is let's talk a bit about the private market. It's not the public market. It's not publicly traded companies. These are private companies and a buyer and seller, just like when you're buying a home, when you want to buy or sell a company, you have to put a price on it. You have to go through a process. But until you go through the process, it's really hard to know what that looks like, feels like. You have more than 15 years. You probably have 20 years at this point experience in the mergers and acquisition space, particularly in the lower middle market. Why don't we start there? Why don't you help us understand what is a lower middle market? What does that mean? What are transaction sizes in this space? And let's talk a little bit about some of the private market dynamics from 2021. Well, the lower middle market definition is very loose. We focus on businesses with enterprise value from one to 20 million roughly. And that excludes the main street market, the pizza shop, and it excludes the major corporations that go to investment bankers and have a multi-million dollar transaction. And the banker gets multi-million dollars as well because it's just full of people, support, and, and these are big corporations. So in this middle zone, there's just a lot of responsibility we take to help a business get ready, business owner, and help them find a, a private buyer. And because it's not a liquid market like the public markets, the buyers are hard to find in some cases. Some businesses are a little more attractive than others, but it takes a process to find them. It's, and it uh, takes a lot of work and it uh, takes time. We have a, a, probably a nine-month average and sometimes much longer to uh, find the right buyer. You were recently at a conference where they talked a lot about 2021 in hindsight and looking forward to 2022. What's the high-level summary from the year? It was a banner year for activity in this space, wasn't it? It certainly was. It was, I think, driven by a number of external factors, partly the change of administration and the threat to raise capital gains taxes. As I mentioned, enterprise value of a million dollars, that was way over the bottom limit of uh, who would be hit with the increased capital gains tax. So every one of our prospective clients was going to see a doubling of capital gains tax. And so they were rushing to, if I'm going to sell, I might as well sell now. That kind of waned literally at the very last day of the year when the Build Back Better Act fell apart. And what happened then is the momentum was already in motion. These people were already thinking about selling. They didn't sell last year. They're still looking to sell now. And then you have the other factors, I think, impacting small business owners. Hiring people now is so hard. They're still dealing with uh, supply chain issues. And so it's just a do they really want to keep doing this? Um, and they're getting older as well. Many, many of our, client, our clients are baby boomer generation. In fact, most are. So it's just a combination of factors. So 2022 is going to be a good year as well. Let's talk about the age wave. You wrote a white paper called the age wave white paper, and it's a resource we can make available to the audience. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for how people can get it. And it's a really good piece. It talks a lot about the demographics and never, ever before have five generations been in the workforce, by the way. That is amazing. And so the baby boomers 
we give them a lot of credit, right? They've done an amazing yeoman's job to build so much in our country, build a lot of wealth in our country. And now they're at the point where there's a transition happening. I mean, it has been happening. You've been talking about that, you know, the last couple of minutes here. And certainly for that demographic, it can be daunting because it's their whole life, right? They put their whole life into that business. They might have their name on the door. Maybe they have a family member that wants to transition. Maybe they don't. A lot of people who do not then look for options. So in this conversation, as we talk about the getting ready part, there's a personal side to getting ready. There's a business side to getting ready. And one of the guests who was on my show, I just loved how he said it, David Weibel, and I'll put a link to his episode. What he said was, you might be ready to sell, but you might not be sell ready. And so sometimes, and I know, Paul, you've seen this in your experience where, especially if it's someone who is in their 60s or 70s, their time clock is shorter than someone who's in their 50s or their 40s to sell the company. And they might not have a sell ready business. Have you encountered that pitfall? All the time. It's funny. I'll refer to my age wave white paper too. I, I did some analysis on the statistics of the mostly baby boomer generation business owners. And they started in the 70s, 1970s, to try to find a job. We had a major recession in the early 70s and then again in the early 80s. And they couldn't find corporate jobs. So they started their own companies. Now, fast forward to 2022, they're in their companies many years. And what happens over time is you get comfortable with the risk factors that are in, embedded in any business. You don't want to fix a machine. The key employees are the same age as you, and they're all looking to retire at the same time. Issues with your customer base that you've you know, got rid of the bad payers and haven't really been advancing your marketing, so you're limited your customer base, but it's still a good, good customer base, but it's got a risk factor with some concentration, et cetera. There's lots of these issues. And the most important is the owner is oftentimes, these are, again, I mentioned, Enterprise value of a million to 20 million. The owner is very instrumental to every decision in the business. And you can't sell a business if the business is you. And that's the saleability issue you mentioned. So we help a business owner address their risk factors and, most importantly, prepare the business for your exit. And it could be hiring someone to replace you and, and you take some time off. And I've said to people if you go away for a month from Florida for a vacation and no one knew you weren't there, now your business is ready. But also, it's just a documentation and getting everything organized in advance. And, and the other factor people don't think about, because we all think we're impervious or never have a, anything happen. I've had many cases where a business owner came to me and said, I have an illness. It's cancer. It's a heart attack. It's uh, something that's happening that changes their perspective on how long they're going to work. And I've said to them, when you're sick, your business is going to be sick too. And that's a problem. So getting the business ready in advance is so important and it increases value dramatically. It, they don't understand, business owners don't typically understand how much leverage they have if the business is really de-risked and uptight and ready to go. Yeah, exactly. So there is a dynamic of when a person is thinking about their timeline. Maybe it's, and we can put it in general buckets, ready now within maybe a year, two to five years, and then more than five years. And I And I know both of us have examples we can think of where people are in each of those categories. And it's true, they do think about getting ready in a different way. But based on what you just said, what are we really summarizing here? We're saying it's just good economics to get your business ready for a sale. Why? Because 
it's all the things that are going to inherently increase its value, make it more easy to run and be more enjoyable. And let's face it, why wouldn't you want to have more balance in your life, have other people running the day to day and having you step back and really work on the things that are important and key to the business? Easy to say, hard to do. I know. I know. Yes. I mean, you know, we can sit here and talk about it all day, but unless you're in the trenches as the entrepreneur, it's always hard to to relate and be in their shoes. And and as you mentioned too, you know, there have been a lot of crises with staffing challenges and supply chain issues, and not to mention a little thing called the pandemic. It's been a really tough couple of years. So if someone's also had health issues, you know, that can on top of it further detract from the value, make the business more risky. Why don't we switch now? And related to this is the process. You started talking about the process of getting ready. You and I call it exit value planning. You've alluded to some of those key steps and how we work with folks. So let's jump into the next step, which is what I call pre-diligence. Pre-diligence tees up what you were saying, which is in the get ready phase. It's not just in your head, it's documented. So what are some of the pitfalls here that you've seen where a company just does not have financials documented well, or, you know, other aspects of the business documented well? Certainly the financials are key because that's what people are buying is return on investment. And if they can't trust your return on on the business you're running, because there's all kinds of fluff in there, like personal expenses, vacations, home, uh, you know, homes, but cars, those things have to be accounted for and adjusted for. And the more of of those things that exist, the more the buyer's questioning more and more of the business. So if you're nearing a point where you might think about getting ready, you should clean up the business and get your financials in order. And in our size target market, it it should include a review from a CPA. Too often it's QuickBooks and that's all. And and already kept QuickBooks too, because there's no rhyme or reason to what they're charging off on various things. So, So that's a cleanup that you need to do. Beyond that is getting your business documentation, due diligence ready. And even if you're not intending to sell your business in in the near future, if it's ready, when the time comes, you have less work to do in the midst of it, of putting the business on the market. A buyer wants to know this, wants to know that. Well, you've already done all the thinking on what I need to show them and and have it ready. Then you don't have the stress factor of doing it under running your business, keeping it confidential, which is important, and having a buyer ask for everything. Yeah, there wasn't just an example to share. I was doing outreach on behalf of a a buyer. One of my clients was a buyer and I had done outreach and found a a services company that might be interested in selling. Well, when I asked for the financials, the first answer was, oh yeah, okay. My wife can get those reports out of our QuickBooks account. Well, here we were 90 days later and there was still the same answer of, oh, she hasn't had a chance to run the reports yet. And eventually I stopped following up. It it clearly was not going to come my way for my client and we moved on. And it seemed at the time so straightforward. All she has to do is run reports. Well, why didn't it happen? Ultimately, they weren't ready to sell. They had other things happening with their family, a million reasons, right? But that's just one example. It can get exacerbated very, very quickly when the deal gets larger and more complex. So the pre-diligence phase is really important. So what's the next thing? The next question people often ask is, well, what is my business worth? And in the private market, it's not easy to answer, right? There's a it million there's a million values for a privately held company. It's in the eyes well, of, of the buyer, right? There are methodologies that valuation experts use, but in my opinion, it's a process that is scientific, but ends up not meaning a lot other than the, that point in time, uh, someone assumes a value, but in reality, what it is worth is what someone will pay for. And you don't know that from the calculations you do 
to put a valuation on. So it's good for your edification to know that, okay, I know a business is worth X, and it's good for, for uh, exit planning purposes if it's your primary method of, of retiring is to, do I have enough value in my business to retire? But it's going to vary dramatically based on the buyer. And in our market, a lot of our buyers are strategic buyers. Therefore, they value the business very differently uh, than the calculations would suggest. So it's, um, it's, it's, you really can't depend on evaluation, but it's good to have, let's put it that way. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stonyhill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. We should just put a caveat on this, that if you're in a, a legal dispute, if you're using evaluation for estate purposes, there are reasons to get certified valuations. In our discussion here, we're saying we help buyers in developing a estimate of value, a market-based estimate of value, including comps, just like if you're buying a house, you want to get market comps. And we do that. But if you are, you know, again, trying to value a business because of a estate plan or other things where there'll be perhaps litigation concerns, then you would want to look into getting a certified valuation, which is a completely different process and cost. (laughs) But I I don't want to discount that. There there is a need for that for sure for certain times. When I get the call about getting a valuation done, I always ask, what's the purpose? Right. If if it is for a legal purpose, you really need a certified valuation. Yeah. And we have some tools for that. And we also offer as a service. And again, in the show notes, I'll, I'll put some links there. If you are interested in, in understanding what your business is worth, it's a great place to start because what we want to do is look at what gaps might we have, right? If you're ultimately trying to retire and have a nest egg of 10 million and we value your business at four, well, you may have a gap unless your other investments are going to close that gap of six as an example, right? Yes. So that's why it's important to just understand, I like to say, you know, what ocean are you swimming in, right? What's your ocean, your lake and your pond? So understanding what your business might be worth to a buyer is a good place to start. And then seeing if there's a gap so that if there's a really big gap that kind of bounces us back to step one on the exit value planning, how might we increase the value of the business over time and decreasing risk, increasing, you know, increasing EBITDA and profitability is a part of that. One caution Never trust the, somebody you know who sold their business and, and they told you they sold it for so much money that you can't believe it. Don't believe it. There's the math behind it. I do a workshop, which is part of it is understanding how valuations work and what's the formula look like. And so number one is whenever someone says, oh yeah, I sold my company for a three times multiple, you have to say of what? Was it times revenue? Was it times seller discretionary earnings? Was it times EBITDA? Because those ratios can be very different. Yes. And so step one is just going back to that. And again, not challenging their multiple, right? But to your point, challenging your own thinking that just because so-and-so got that multiple means you will too. It may not be, that may not happen. Correct. Yeah. So that's a good point. All right. So we're going down the path now. So we've got an evaluation on our company and now we're thinking about putting it on the market. So are we going to go about this on our own? As a business owner, is it a for sale by owner kind of situation, just like a house? Am I going to sell my house on my own or am I going to work with a, an intermediary, a broker, an advisor? You can put whatever label you want on it. 
we like to call ourselves mergers and acquisitions intermediaries because we're providing a level of service. What do you think about that? What have you encountered? What are some of the pitfalls of some business owners who have gone about the for sale by owner path? Excellent question because most of our clients, as I said, they're baby boomers and been in their business 30 years. They've never done this before. They have no expertise in doing this. Uh, you may sell three or four houses in your lifetime. You sell in your business once. And it's the most valuable asset you have, really. And you want to do it, especially if it's the end of your career and you're selling to retire. You want to get the best advice and do the best and get the best offer you can. So to do it on your own is amazing. It, it just does, doesn't make sense to me. Um, we, in order to address that, and we get asked this sometimes where uh, a potential seller has a, someone interested in buying their company who they've been talking with, they'll come to us and we offer facilitation services. We'll help them execute the transaction uh, with our advice and our oversight of what's happening, including the valuation, so they know what their business is worth and, and what they should be asking. And so um, it really makes a difference. And, and it's important that you really don't want to do this on your own or with just your accountant or your attorney. They, they can do part of the job, but there's much more to it. We work collaboratively with accountants and attorneys because we all have something to add to the, to the process. It's a lot of time. You know, there's a lot of time that goes into selling. There's the back and the forth, obviously, in communications. And there's also the confidentiality. It's yes. hard to, to know when to share with your team, you know, and pull who to pull in at the right time. And then that's, of course, a distraction to them, but you have to entrust them at, at the right time. So that can be a pitfall too, especially yeah. if you're running a process on your own. It's absolutely true. Um, we're all often asked about, should I tell anybody that, uh, that reports to me? And, and the answer is, well, you know, it depends really on um, how trustworthy they are to keep it quiet and, and how necessary they are to stay on board and Sometimes uh, I have a client now, he's giving phantom stock, which is a piece of the action that if the business is sold, then he gets a, a part of the, the, the uh, transaction value because you need to keep him on board. He's going to stay on. And you, you, you put a, a time on a, a, the, the maturing of the phantom stock like a year or two or three years so the buyer knows this key individual is going to stay involved in the business. Um, those are factors that come into play, but it, it, that's where the, the facilitation comes in. We analyze the circumstances around the transaction and help the, the, the client, the seller, really make the best decisions along the way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the next phase I'll call business development. It's marketing the company. It's putting together the materials that gives the potential buyers an understanding of very confidential information. They're only going to get it after they've signed a non-disclosure then again, in terms of managing a process, this is what we do. We put together a process on a roadmap, and this phase is really, really important. So we're trying to understand who to who to sell the company to. So if a, if a seller has been thinking about this and having conversations, that yeah, it may lead them to selling directly because they've had conversations with strategics or maybe it's a key vendor or something. Then there's been conversations about buying the business. But when there have not been those conversations, we need to do some research. We need to figure out who these potential buyers might be. How long does that process take? How do we find the right buyer? How do we build the list? Why don't we talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls in this in this phase? Absolutely. And I mentioned earlier that um, we very often find strategic uh, acquirers. Um, there is always sometimes a potential for economic buyers. 
So there is a, a listing process. You can put the business on the market in a confidential way and let people find it. Um, but that's kind of posting and hoping that they find it. So we actually identify likely uh, interested buyers and, and can be a uh, competitor in some cases. Uh, and some buyers, some clients don't want their competitor to know. So we'll make a list and sometimes it gets scratched. Uh, it can be a, a vertical market integration or someone in your industry is, is making acquisitions that's uh, helping them grow. Um, so they're buying down and you know, adding on to their company, which is often the case with private equity. There's platforms and there's add-ons. They, it can be a supplier who uh, wants to ensure uh, that they have customers for their products and services um, and, and so on. So we analyze the potential marketplace and use our tools and databases to identify the targets. We send them uh, teasers, which are, again, like with the listing, it's a, a nondescript kind of uh, document that doesn't tell you who the name of the company and so on. We have to protect the confidentiality. But it's enough that they might be interested. And that's again, goes back to the NDA and starting a process with that potential buyer. Um, so there's a number of avenues we take, uh, depending on the type of business and the opportunity uh, to, to find the right uh, buyer. But it, you have to understand the, the marketplace to be able to do that. Absolutely. It can take a, a decent amount of back and forth time, which again is, is why having an intermediary is helpful because I, I find in my experience now working with sellers, it takes them again away from their day to day. It takes them away from their team, their focus. So it's a lot that we put on ourselves, and that's a key part of the process. It was funny. There's one of my clients, and he was trying to determine why should he hire an M and A advisor, and what he was told was, "Those are things you just don't want to do." <laughs> she said to him as an advice, "You know, they're providing a level of service that of things that you just, you wouldn't want to be doing. And, and it's not talking down what we do. It just means it's very different from running your business day to day. And he said, oh, I completely understand. And now that I've work, been working with him, he, he told me that story because I think he appreciates, you know, what I'm doing for him. And, and there's a lot happening behind the scenes that he knows I'm doing on his behalf. So let's jump forward. We're going to skip a couple of steps here and jump to the end, which is, all right. So after we find buyers, we start to get some indication of interest, term sheets, we get letters of interest. There's a whole lot of work in that phase to evaluate these deals, negotiate the deals. And now we've come to the deal closing. Yay, right? We've got the bank involved, there's lending. I mean, you and I are skipping over a lot of steps here. To get to the last phase here, I think it's important to talk about, we don't want to just get you to a successful deal. We want it to be successful thereafter, right? So whether you're a buyer or seller, we want you to be successful and happy. So let's talk about some of the post-sale watchouts from some seller side in particular, and it goes to how these deals can be structured. So what are some of the expectations that a buyer might have in a transition? What are some of the deal terms that might be included to make sure that the transition is successful? Most of these occur in the negotiation where there might be um, a mismatch on price where the buyer wants makes an offer and the seller wants more. So you can close that gap with things like earnouts and seller notes and other aspects, com, uh, non-compete agreements, um, a compensation agreement that you're going to stay on for X number of years, sometimes even a minority interest in the, in the acquirer's business. So that those become, uh, and we provide the guidance on what is common and, and uh, uh, recommended in certain circumstances because 
uh, it's important to uh, understand to, to know what kind of feel the difference in in the tension of the negotiation. If you know it's a, if it's a, if it's an easy negotiation, then you can resolve these things quickly. If it's a, if it's a tense negotiation, then you got to hold your ground and, and make sure you don't get rolled over. And then after the acquisition is completed, there are issues of uh, integration and uh, today the human capital component of a transaction is becoming so important uh, and has to be thought of in advance of the closing, but also afterwards you have to have some, we have, we have recommendations to certain people who work with business owners in that, but uh, it's on the acquirer side, but mostly it's integrating the two businesses. Uh, and again, in strategic sense, the, the buyer has a population of employees and the seller has a population of employees and it might be overlap or it might be different HR policies and it might be, um, just different compensation plans. So they, they have to be merged together. And uh, that's that's a tricky process too. So there's a lot of work and, and this is not an easy job in, from beginning to end. No, it's not easy. And I recently went through the certification process with the Association of Mergers and Acquisitions Advisors. And it was great education because I'm, I'm a continuous learner. I love it. It was hard work, but I loved getting the perspective of, the instructors, one of the things that they talked about was if you're not thinking about integration until deal close, it's too late. You really need to be thinking about integration at the strategy planning side, which is the very first step. How are you going to integrate this business? And I think for you and I and others that we work with in this space, we've developed a really nice collaboration network where we can make referrals to other professional service providers, particularly in this space where we don't do post MA work, right? We, we get you to that point, but then that's where our engagements typically stop. And we can help bring in other experts who do focus on, and this is one example, right? Where the post MA integration needs to be successful. How do you think about human capital, the systems integration, et cetera? So that's an, another thing I know I try to do is a value add is bringing in you know, bringing in a collaboration of other advisors, whether it's tax, legal, right? Don't you agree? Absolutely. When I started the company uh, 12 years ago, the, the idea was to be holistic, to have a, a relationship with a, a business owner years in advance of selling, helping them get ready, help them through the process, find the best buyer, and then help make sure that that transaction, which is your legacy, is is properly executed by the buyer, that there's there, the integration is thought of in advance and um, it's, it's oversought with the, the right type of uh, skill sets. So that whole process is important, in my opinion, to, to be able to, uh, to get referrals from prior clients and to be uh, represented in the marketplace as being one of the best companies to, uh, to seek. Yeah. And I love working with clients to help guide them through this process. And I know you do too. And it's been fun to talk to you about the process. I know it seems really intimidating. We've been talking about pitfalls and, but I think the reassurance is that, look, it can be a very effective process. It's just good to have people on your team that have been through this before and that can help you. And of course, we're advocating for that collaboration and to not go it alone. You, at a minimum, you got to have a good attorney who's been through this before a tax accountant that can advise you. And of course, we would advocate for having an m and intermediary by your side too. Absolutely. This, everybody has a role to play to make it successful. And uh, we work with, in fact, we get a lot of referrals from accountants and attorneys because we have good relationships in all the deals we do. 
Yeah, for sure. All right. So let's turn the tables back to you for fun street, as my as my friend likes to call it in the side of an interview, a little fun street questions. What is something about you that I would be surprised to know? Uh, I'll go way back. Um, you might see a couple of little footballs there. I played football in college and uh, not a lot of people know that because it's so long ago. I think people think I had a leather helmet, but it wasn't. But it's, um, it's... <laughs> All right. Favorite book or movie? Actually, I'm reading this book for the second time, and it's um, Do Not Split the Difference. It's about negotiation, and the uh, author was an FBI negotiator and did a lot of work with hostage situations, but it, he applies it to business, too, and it's really, uh, it gives me, helps me understand when, as I've said through this meeting, uh, negotiations are a key part of what we do. We provide the guidance, and I know with, from that experience, it's uh, it's really important to, to know the signals. One of the things that it's, we talk about in the book is um, open-ended questions and, and ask how, not will you, you know, which it's a yes or no. It doesn't get you very far. But, you, you know, how, how are you going to do this and so on? So it gets people to, to respond in their thought process, not just one-word answers. So it's a, it's a it's well-written book. Excellent. And... What is something that you and your household do every day as a as a ritual? Every day, well, I work every day, basically. Twenty four seven. Yeah, um, my kids are grown. I have six grandkids, so um, we spend a lot of time with them in various ways. Uh, they're in ages where they're in sporting events, uh, so we got to see that, and uh, that's a big part of what uh, we do every day is the, the grandkids. That's awesome. All right. And I know I asked you last time you were on the show, but I'll ask it again. If you have a favorite quote to share. It's, it's kind of a funny quote. It doesn't relate to the business too much, but I love quotes from Yogi Berra. And he once said about a restaurant, uh, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Um, <laughs> so it kind of tells you the juxtaposition of uh, the idea of being crowded and not going there anymore. Yeah, well, <laughs> that has its other connotations now with how we think about crowds. Paul, it's been great to have you back on the show. I love the conversation. I hope that we gave our listeners a lot to think about and learn. And of course, invite everyone to follow up directly with me anytime people can get in touch with me. But also, if they want to get in touch with you, what is a great way to do that? Uh, email is probably easy. Uh, it's just my first name at stonyhilladvisors.com. Uh, Sony is S-T-O-N-Y, and uh, that's the, probably the easiest way to reach out. All right, and we'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well. Paul, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you, Laurie. Appreciate it. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.